0: Greetings, ladies and mental gents, and welcome to this batch video for the web novel First Contact, written by Rolts Bloodthorn, which is available on both Royal Road and HFY. The links for them will be down below. And as always, I hope that you enjoy, and if you do, please consider supporting the channel. First Contact, chapter 48. The second highmost expected illegal fighters in the mechs to charge these dropships, in nearly 2,000 power armor ready to swarm the nine patchwork-looking mechs in front of him to pry the pilots out so that they could summarily be executed. He was personally looking forward to exiting the cramped shelters of the center of the Executor Headquarters and moving to what seismic scouting had shown as a heavy and elaborate shelters beneath the mining facility. He already knew that he'd use his planetary authority to order the Terran anti aircraft to point defenses units to either leave or follow his orders, then eject the rabble and useless drones from the shelter so those who, by right, should have been in those shelters could take their rightful place. Ilmuak didn't bother charging, he opened armored covers of his missile launchers and started firing. The power armor, barely taller than his foot, erect the long-range lasers and particle beams. Armor exploded, the missiles programmed to hammer through precursor armor, sliced through the dropships like butter, and the point defense barely had time to come online before the hypersonic missiles started blowing huge holes in the ships. The feeding flickered and died as three-quarters of the dropships exploded into shards, the shrapnel ripping through the still-forming ranks of power armor, Autocannons, lasers, particle beams, mag shot rounds, all ripped into the power armor as the mech pilots triggered a second salvo. A few power armor groups charged, using their jump packs to take to the air in big hops. The mech pilots swept them out of the sky with lasers and autocannons. Within seconds, the armor was fleeing back to the dropships, several of the surviving handful of dropships attempting to take off, only for the third volley of missiles to smash into them collapsing deflector shields, overwhelming point defense and what was more used to enthrone homemade explosives than hypersonic missiles in long streams of screaming, swirling missiles, some of which exploded into subunitions that kicked into the grav generators and slammed tungsten steel tips into the hulls of the dropships with nearly Mach 20. "'Goodbye, Executor,' Ilwak said emotionlessly." The image of the second highmost, he then opened up his rotating autocannon, slamming the two hundred millimeter shells, fired one every half a second as the barrels rotated into the hull. The single burst blew through the entire ship, exiting out the other side and slamming against the next one. He knew that his uncle, his aunt, his cousins, so young and innocent, would remain in their shelters as he raked the last of the power armor infantry with his non consumable munition weapons. He felt something then, a flicker. Something. He didn't know what, but he felt it for a second. All enemy down, Tack reported. I don't think that went the way they expected. If it did, it was a poor plan, Albuak stated. All pilots back to the choke point. The Jotun undoubtedly hopes what we are damaged. The other eight pilots flashed icons for ascent, following him back. Plankatik raked the shattered ranks of the power armor once more, just for good measure, before turning and following Ulmawak. Her brood carriers were swollen with squirming prodlings growing from the eggs that she had deposited, and her husbands fertilized. She would not allow some pampered executive who had looked down on the streets that she had fought and clawed to survive on take their place. If she was persuaded to die, then so be it. Her husbands would sing her glory to the podlings. The nine mechs, shimmering with heat, moved back to the end of the valley when waited. Elwak was almost ready to radio back to find out what was taking so long when Tack woke up. We've got satellite again. The mad lad trucker put half a dozen bolos in orbit. He did it. He actually did it, Tack laughed. Oh, and the 144th ordnance is arriving. They say they're going to load us up with munitions. They've even got maintenance techs and parts. All right, everyone, let's head back. Ulmoak ordered. Everyone was silent as they marched back. Gone was the chatter, the jokes, the usual talk. Instead, Ulmoak noted that everyone appeared to be exhausted, even though they'd been getting rest. They didn't feel tired, just bored. Tack. Ulmoak asked. Yeah, boss, what's up? Tack asked. Can you check everyone's vitals? I'm worried that they may be tired. Ulmoak said. Yeah, just a second. Tack said. After a moment, he answered. A little tired, but no more than normal. Why do they seem so exhausted? Why are they so silent? Usually, Distrexel does not be silent, but he has said hardly two sentences since the first battle. Ulwax said, Is it? What is it called? A bioweapon? There was a silence for a moment. Boss, do you not know about battle fatigue? Battles make you tired. Of course, that's why I insist and sleep between, Ulwax said. That's why I suggested stims before the battle. Well, it's... Wait, you did what? Tak said, boss. That's not a good idea. It's not a good idea even with a professional standing force. Why not? Elmoak asked, looking at the unused impact sitting in his pouch. It messes with your body chemistry. I mean, real bad. Just a few minutes of combat can leave you exhausted for a day or two. That's why sleep is so important to commanders. Tak said, boss. You guys aren't trained for this. You should start to need rotating. Like with the ammunition? Elmoak asked. Like that, only take like half of your force out. Just have the rests and stand by, eating and sleeping, Tack said. Some of them will feel too tired to drink liquid or even eat. Oh, Albuak said. He felt fine. He'd assumed that the others did too. Who should I have sleep? Tack sighed. I don't know. According to my files, have the ones who took the most damage get some sleep. They're going to be the most tired. I shall follow your advice, Warboy, Albuak stated. He wished he had his narco-brew. "'Captain McGran, 144th Ordnance Company, you must be Ulmoak,' the Terran said. He still stuck Ulmoak as an odd when he saw a human who wasn't a Warborg. The Terran had on body armor, with strength enhancements and a backpack more like a hump on his back, but nothing like the heavy body of a Warborg. His face was fuzzy, orange and white, with a muzzle adorned with whiskers and a black nose.' his mouth full of sharp-pointed canine teeth. I am known as such, Omoak said. He looked around at the humans that were running everywhere, some carrying technical looking equipment that just about weighed them by five to six times. Some in the massive cargo mech frames were grabbing blocks of missiles and cannons and mag shot and moving them over. This is all Mulse mech ammo, variable mission, configurable missile warheads, all in the hypersonic range. Mission configurable mortar rounds. Same with your cannon and mag shot, the Terran said. I'm having my men to make you sure your VIs know how to use them. You have advanced virtual intelligence, Olmourak said. The Terran raised an eyebrow. Really? Yes, Olmourak said. There was a silence for a moment before the human cleared his throat. Well then, uh, we'll reload your stores, some medical supplies, and medical VI. Drop you some food and water and get moving. We've got an armor brigade down to slush the human said. Very well, Oboak said. The Terran turned away, shaking his head and flicking his ears. He'd dealt with the Langtalans before, and usually they were blowing saliva, rattling those tendrils around, raising and lowering their chest, and shaking their jowls. That one had just been still, his eyes dead and empty, more life in the cybernetic eye. He's probably just tired, Captain Mugan thought to himself, wishing that he could scratch the base of his tail through the armor. Alboac moved over to where the narco-brew and food had was strewn on up on the table. He took a bottle of brew and some condensed Nutri-Cud and watched the humans run around. It looked like a complete anarchy to him, but within half an hour the Terran who had talked to him came walking back up. "'You're good to go,' We can't drop the nanoforge or creation engine here. Too much metal in the rocks. They'd just start doing extraction without taking a few hours to put up the proper shielding and running the proper protocols. The Terran said, his whiskers trembling. The same reason we can't drop you an AI core. The AI would get drunk on the EM scatter, and then the metal without enough shielding and our nanoforges are mostly slush. Very well, Almorak said. The Terran looked at him for a moment and then shrugged and headed towards the vehicle, a sleek-looking hovercraft with a squad of barrel iron slug rapid-fire guns in the back. The Terran, leaning against it with a white stick in his mouth, blowing smoke as he watched the sky. Elmoac knocked on the table an almost empty bottle, getting his pilot's attention. Once he was sure that he had it, he spit out the plastic fiber wadding in the synth cud on the ground and looked at them. "'Everyone, get some sleep.' We'll have satellites now to watch the Picosis for us, Ulbwak said. I'll wake you if you are needed. From now on, we only go out in groups of twelve with a leader. They all nodded, breaking up, and Ulbwak watched them leave. He moved over to the highmost mechanic, Cricket, and looked over the ammunitions and stalls. Ulbwak noticed the smaller being had the headset on, obviously speaking with his own AVI. How well are we now, Stocked? Ulbwak asked. Cricket looked up, nodding. Very well, these missiles, there's something else, boss. Our tubes can fire them, luckily. And the parts? Elbowak asked. A little problem there. If we have to fix the knee, we'll have to replace both actuators, or we'll run with a limp, because these are top-shelf stuff, Cricket said. He wiped his hands on his coveralls up and shading his eyes. You sure we'll be getting warning if someone's coming? I'm sure, Elbowak said. He looked around. I must go speak to another, ensure the mechs are loaded and repaired. Cricket nodded. Sure, boss, sure. Alwa cropped away, heading into the office where Tack had been brave enough to tell him that he had failed. He moved in, picked up a shielded communicator normally used to talk to corporate headquarters in the capital, and plugged it in and dialed the comm code he'd memorized, leaned back and sitting sling and waited. His uncle's face appeared. Apartment 2621. Uncle, Olmuak said, reaching out and touching the screen. He could almost feel something, something he felt when he'd watched the Thumpman escort his uncle to the shelters. Olmuak, his uncle said. Olmuak expected the older, like to man to inflate his crest, curl his tendrils, and shake his jaws in rage. Instead, the older man looked behind him, then looked back at the screen. Are you well? Almoak nodded. I am uninjured. Is it terrible up there? The news says that the planetary forces are defeating the precursors across the fronts and that they will be defeated in a matter of days, his uncle said. He paused. That is not true, is it? Almuak shook his head. No, uncle. It is not. Even the humans are fighting hard. The factory. To the bowels of the dying ones with the factory. Almoak. how are you? The older male repeated. I am uninjured, Almuak said. I wish to know that you and our family are not suffering. The older Almuak's patrols trembled with something Almuak didn't understand. It is crowded, it is noisy at times, but your sick men are keeping order. We are just not suffering. But what about you? Almuak shrugged. I will fight to defend the shelters. Not only are you there, but loyal workers and their families. Families of my Bashmek pilots." His uncle stayed silent, reaching back with four hands and touching the screen at the corners. "'Please, nephew, be careful.' Albuak shrugged again. "'It'll be what it'll be, uncle. I shall fight hard to prevent the Precursors from reaching you. Shall I fall? The Terrans have stated that they will protect you.' "'You... You managed to make a deal with the Terrans?' His uncle asked. "'No. They value you and the others and will seek to protect you,' Albuak said. "'No deal.' No bargain. They just have sworn to witness what I and my pilots do here and protect you. Loy, who is that? Alwack heard his aunt ask. Something inside him twisted and he felt something for a moment. Tell her I was just a thumpman, Alwack said. Stay alive, uncle. Before the uncle could reply, he unplugged the communicating device. The feeling went away and he picked up a half-empty bottle of whiskey and took a long drink. Boss... Are you alright? Tack asked. Of course, Holmwax said, finishing off the bottle and setting it on the desk. He dabbed the narco injector into his arm. Why wouldn't I be? Just checking. You should get some sleep, Tack said. I've things that must be done. You should get some rest, defrag, recompile, and sector check yourself. Holmwax said, sliding out of the sling. Alright boss, call me if you need me, Tack said. "'I will,' Albuak promised, cropping away through the deserted refinery office. Albuak stood on the edge of a valley, staring at the hull beyond. The Jotun had pushed more vehicles and more and more at his bash mechs. Tak had told him that the Jotun had been forced to allocate a heavy combat robots to defend against the Terran combat vehicles. Now the entire valley was nothing but broken, scorched, carbonized, and melted metal, slagged internals of robots.' "'and a pair of dead bashmaks. "'I screwed up. "'I didn't fall back fast enough "'when the aircraft came in,' "'Plunketech said, shaking her head. "'Zilkmak and Tikriz got caught up "'by the bombing run. "'Half my bashmaks got seriously damaged, "'and I've had to send the back for repairs. "'Were they witnessed?' "'Omwak asked carefully. "'Yes,' Plunketech said softly. "'Ayo, how dead?' "'She said. "'She fired a single hypersonic missile.' No guidance, no warhead, just a dead missile on a high parabolic arc that left a white trail in the sky as it sped towards the Jordan and vanished in the distance. Did they have family in the shelters? Ulmuak stared at the destroyed valley that had once been the site of a luxury vacation homes for wealthy executives. The river was full of toxic runoff from the battles. Yes, both did, Planketuk said. Then they will live on, Ulmuak said. "'Boss, boss!' Tacek suddenly broke into the somber moment. "'Take a knee!' "'What?' Alboac asked. He heard Plunkett's war boy yell the same thing. "'This!' Tuck threw a wire frame of the old screens, just down on one knee, arms covering his chest, face tilted down, hands over his face, leaning slightly forward. Alboac took the position, feeling shattered precursor machines crumble even further under his knees. "'Why do we?' Albuak started. A bright flash. A tore opened the sky, and Tack turned off the screens of the cockpit, completely opaque. The rumble started. The speakers howled with static. Sparks shot out forward of the control panel. The rumble got louder and harder. And suddenly, a shock wave hit them from the front. He actually felt these mechs slide back a few meters. Something moving at 500-ton bulk, like it was an adult pushing a defiant child. He then a split second of calm, then the blast hit again. Harder, and Olmuak found himself leaning forward. Ejecting Masabe, digital Omni Messiah, help us. Tack screamed out. Another space. Then a third shock wave, this one lifting him slightly, giving him a brief feeling of weightlessness. Impacts hit his battle screens and Ulmoak was sure that it was the wreckage of the precursor vehicles being thrown against the bash mech by some giant hand. Olmuak felt something inside, just for a second. His mech hit the ground and he narrowly avoided putting his hand out to stabilize himself before Tack got his gyros under control. Here comes the boom, boss! Tack screamed and Olmuak could hear the fear in the avi's voice. The roar! The explosion wasn't a sound, it was a physical thing, at first slammed into his bash mech with steel-covered knuckles. He managed to keep on one knee, managed to keep upright, light shined through the cracks that he didn't even know were there around his modified cockpit cover. He saw his battle screens fail right before his screens dissolved into static. Tak screamed in agony. The radiation meters inside the cockpit began to howl. Hubert panels blew out, showering Ulvoax's flanks with visplas, Static howled through Ulvoax's implant, and his cyber eye suddenly went white and shut down. His mech went dead. It was silent, just the ticking of cooling metal, not even a faint hum of the fusion reactor. Ulvoax sat there, looking around in curiosity as the cyber eye rebooted. Failed, rebooted again, and came online, shot with static that slowly cleared. His cockpit cover was cracked in two places. The foot-thick armor-plast crazed white and shot through the spiderwebs. Carefully, slowly, Ulmuak restarted his bash mech. It took five minutes before it started up sluggishly. The fusion reactor had to be flushed twice before it would start. The mag bottle projectors overloaded and charged, ionized, and the circuitry was still full of straight charges. B Boss, Tack said. Boss, are you alive? I am intact, Ulmoak said. You screamed. It sounded like pain. Tack made a sound that reminded Ulmoak of a cough. Particle, teeth someone saw a chance and hit the Jotun with a battery. Tak coughed, a plasma wave phased motion gun from near orbit or a near sea velocity shell or a main near sea velocity shell or a main ion cannon from the battleship. It hurt, Almoak asked. There was a 1.4 kiloton EMP at the end, boss. It was like getting hit in the face with a bash mech fist to you. It blew straight through the particle shields. It took down the battle screens, wrecked up everything, Tak said. He buzzed a second. I'm all hashed up. Sector errors, CRC errors. I'm pretty fragmented. Is it safe to stand up? Olmuac said. Yeah, boss, it should be, Tack said. I had to eject the missiles and plasma rounds. Take it easy. Defrag and perform maintenance on yourself, Tack. Olmuac said, standing up the mech slowly. Only one of these displays worked, a small one for the drone feeds. And Olmuac shifted his forward view of it. It was nothing but static so he rebooted his screens. Triggering a data link, he brought up the comms codes with the seven Bashmik pilots that he had been with and dialed them. Only four answered. Follow me. We need to repair. Textakuk's ammunition exploded. He didn't eject his ammunition in time, Plunkatuk said. I can see old Sir Rat's mech. It's stalled apart. What happened? Ventra asked. Orbital shot. They took the shot at the Jotun. Alwak told them. His display cleared up just in time for him to look at where the Jotun was. By the forgotten brood mothers, Plakatik said slowly, and Ulmuak knew that she was seeing it too. The clouds were gone, swept away by the blast. A huge mushroom cloud had formed, with other clouds riding up. Black and red, with fires burning in the huge cloud at the top, lightning flickering in them. The whole sky looked like it was burning." ''I think they got it,'' Rokstow said softly. ''Let us hope. Do not count the credits before with the end of the match,'' Ulmoak warned. ''Let us return. We need to repair and refit.'' The others, used to Ulmoak's calm voice and unshakable demeanor, followed him as they slowly trudged back. The trees were burning. What few buildings remained were flattened. Debris from the valley had crashed into the landscape. The heavier and larger pieces first. Smoke covered everything.' dust and small debris hanging in the air. My warrior boy is stuttering, Sounds drunk, Wokstar said. Order him to defrag and recompile, Olmouac said. They moved through the shattered day, Olmouac piloting his damaged bash mech by a single screen that barely worked, until they reached the quarry. Twice more, the rumble of great explosions washed over them, in the quarry, the stacks of ammo were tipped over. The cranes on the edge of the quarry had fallen into. Four of the bash mechs were on their backs, and one was getting up slowly. Another was gutted, and chassis were burning from where the missiles inside them had detonated. Fires were still being put out, and Olmouac noted that it looked like everything had been pushed slightly towards the far side of the quarry. Olmouac stopped and powered down his mech, noting At the survival core case, Votak no longer shined a green light, just a yellow one that slowly flashed. He tried to open the cockpit, but the motor just sputtered and clattered on stripped gears. Elbowak had to have the mechanics remove the canopy. The air smelled of seared metal, smoke, and pulverized rock. Seeing the clouds in the distance with the naked eye, not one small screen was impressive, Elbowak noted. Other Bashmek pilots got out and just stared, their jaws hanging open. A few, like Wokstowl, started crying. Elbowak went into the office to check the status of the shelters. He had to go back out, get a battery, and attach it to the lone comlink that he could find still working, one as he applied power. They were fine. They would barely felt the shock. Still, he stood by the desk, thinking for a long time in the darkness. The power was still out. The only connection to the shelters was a single shielded hard line and a single freight elevator that still had power and was protected by a 10-meter thick endosteel shutter. After a moment, he made his decision, going out to the mechanics. I need some parts and your help, he told Cricket. The mechanic nodded. Together, they set to work. It was raining. The clouds were heavy. The rain was full of ash, leaving sticky black streaks on everything. The mechanics were still working on the bash mechs, replacing armor, damaged molecular circuitry, replacing actuators that had been frozen up from the sleet and particles or from the impact of debris. Bash mechs were being reloaded as Urbuak started on his remaining pilots. He was down to ten. Several pilots had been killed by the shockwave, picked up and thrown against something hard enough to kill them. Some could not fight anymore. Unable to stop weeping, some had died in the blast by the canyon. He considered it worth it to kill the Jotun. We must keep fighting, Albuak said. Half of them flinched. Those who cannot retreat to the shelters, Albuak ordered. Be with your families. You will witness those who stay. Three left. Albuak touched each one on the shoulder and bid them farewell. Cricket, send all of your essential mechanics to the shelters, Albuak ordered. Once the bash mechs are repaired and reloaded, you and the others retreat to the shelters. Boss, you're going to need us, Cricket said. He's waved his mechs. We're going to get damaged. Need us, Almwak shook his head. No, friend Cricket, we will not. He turned to Plunkertick. Go to the shelter, be with your podlings and your family. Plunkertick shook her head. No, I will not hide while others fight to protect my family. Almwak frowned. I will need you down there. You will need me up here more. The female stared at Olmwak for a long moment. Boss, I've been with you since we were welding metal forklifts. I know you. There are some things you don't get, and this is one of them, she said. Very well, thank you, Olmwak said. She was right. Some things he just did not understand. He understood loyalty, though, and Blanketuk had denied turning the execuse or the corpsick, who had stolen the entire batch of brew, sitting in the cell right next to Ulomak until his uncle had used his connections to set them both free. Moving over to the table, he picked up another wad of synth cud, jamming it into his jaws. He chewed it, slowly looking at the entrance to the cave. There was a crack in it, a big one. One of the engineers had put a strut in place to ensure that the cave stayed open and beings were moving the ammo into the cave with the rest of it. Looking back at the Jotun, he could see that the clouds started to spread out. The sky looked bloody and bruised. "'Boss, you there, boss?' Tack asked suddenly. "'I'm here,' Olmwak said. "'I'm all better now, boss,' Tack said. "'I was really torn up by the EMP and those particle bursts. I'm better now.' "'Good,' Olmwak said. "'Run diagnostics and pleasure and glory, please.' "'Sure, boss,' Tack said.' After a few minutes, his voice came back. Boss, why is there a shielded encrypted high-speed data link connected to my survival core? What is that for? Emmanuel suggested it. Brent Tack, Olwak lied. Lying to his friends was wrong, but Olwak had come to understand Tack. Oh, okay. The glory really is beat up. She's fully loaded, and they've got her largely repaired. But there's some serious armor damage into arms, and the shock absorbers on the crash casts are blown out. Tak said. Very well, informed the mechanics, Umuak said, but out a mass of plasterings that cut empty, they grabbed another knocker brew. Something was happening. He was sure of it. He stared off into the distance where the Jotun was burning. Boss, boss, Tak's voice gave his attention. Yes, Umuak asked, opening his eyes. I was looking through the couple of drones that survived the blast. We've got trouble, boss, Tak said. What type? Ulboiak asked, getting to his feet. Metal incoming, lots of metal incoming. They're pouring out of the Jotun. It's an army, Tack said. I'm seeing everything. Repair bots, infantry, big bots from flying in an anti-grab, some on treads, and some just putting themselves with one arm. They want the refinery to repair and bring back to life their god machine, Ulboiak said. He whistled to get the attention of his pilots. Most of them were asleep, and he sent a whistle through their comlinks. Start, glory! Almwhack told Tank, and then looked up at his pilots. The enemy are coming. How many? Wokstow asked. All of them, Almwhack answered. If you cannot pilot, retreat to the shelter. Three more blanched and left. One was Restalak, whose chest rings were broken and having problems breathing. That left five of them. Crackit, Almwhack said through his link. Yeah, the engineer asked. Take your people and hide in the cave. The precursors are coming. All of them, uh, Olmwak ordered. Your mech isn't finished, boss, Cricket said. Obey me, was all that Olmwak said. All right, boss, we'll hide out in the back of the cave, Cricket said. The mechanics and workers streamed by, running for the cave. As the Bashmek pilots ran for the machines, Ulmoak stared at the burning horizon and idly injected the inside of his upper right arm with a narco stim, tossing the container behind him. He walked to the glory and looked at it. His pilot's couch was still exposed. "'Bus, you can't pilot like this. You're going to be here in minutes,' he said. "'Do not fear,' Ulmoak said. The sky screamed and Ulmoak looked up to see the shafts of light streaking across the sky. Terminating in greasy-looking clouds, he heard weird fluttering and saw rockets firing towards the Jotun. Point defense and counter-battery, boss, Taks said. The Terran military is trying to help, but you're at the edge of the defensive range. Tell them we will be there soon, Elbowax said, climbing the ladder. He didn't bother to retract it, just sat back in his couch and leaned back. Getting his mech sync up with his brain, he lifted on a hand and grabbed the ladder and tore it away. Moving over to the pile of armor, bent down and grabbed a piece, bending it around the blacksmith's hands, walking slowly as he moved to Waxtow. Use your light lasers and weld this into my mech, he ordered. He slammed a piece into place, bending it and flexing it with the power of the mech's hand. You sure? Waxtow asked. I'm sure, Elmwak said. All right, boss, Waxtao said. Ulmwak heard the hiss of the laser and moved his hand away from Warkstall told him to. He buckled down to his restraints and straps as Warkstall finished the job. His screens were sufficient. He moved the HUD from his missing canopy to his cybernetic eye. They're almost here, boss. Tack said. I'm ready, Ulmoak said. He opened the link. Get ready. He turned to the cave, checking the thermals to ensure that nobody was near. He used a laser to slice through the beam at the entrance and collapsed. He fired a single particle beam cannon into the cliff face just above and collapsed the entrance, bringing more rock down. "'Boss! Boss! What are you doing?' Cricket said. "'Stay safe. Go into the shelter. Well, shut the doors behind you. Someone will come and help you,' Olmouac said. "'You were a faithful employee, Cricket.' "'Thank you, boss,' Cricket said. Olmouac cut the link.' turning to facing the far side of the quarry. where The switchback let down into it. Follow me, we'll join the Terrans, and there, Olwak said, there, they will witness us, and we will witness them. His five cohorts followed him, waiting as he used lasers on the last of the ammunition parts, reducing everything to wreckage. They're coming, boss, Tak said. The sky was full of traces and puffs of explosions. Metal fragments had started falling from the sky, Ulmoac led his comrades to the large parking lot, which had once held hauler trucks, cargo lifts, executive cars, and factory worker buses. Now there was only half a dozen Terran vehicles, all of them firing skyward. Ulmowak wished he had a comlink for the Terrans, but pushed that away. Wishes were for children. Together they stood and paced the direction that the machines would be coming in from. Destroy the buildings, Ulmoac ordered. Together, the last six pilots of the arena reduced the buildings to slag, using lasers and particle beams. "'Boss, here they come,' Tack said. The machines swarmed out of the wreckage and through the alleys. There was no time to talk. The six pilots fired missiles, boring them into the oncoming machines. Short-range missiles for the rushes, long-range to hammer the oncoming ranks. Lasers and particle beams shrieked and thundered through the air." For every precursor Ulmuak and his comrades killed, twenty more, or a hundred more, filled the gap. Slowly, the machines gained ground, coming closer and closer. The Terran vehicle's ammo ran dry, and Ulmuak ordered them over his loudspeakers, which was he entertained the crowd with so long ago, to retreat. He used the phrase that he had heard the Terran say on the Trivid, Get out of here, boys. There's nothing you can do. The two Terran vehicles stayed, laser point defense vehicles, their lasers raking the long-range missiles out of the sky. As the precursor machines advanced, now onto the tarmac of the parking lots, pushing past the wreckage of the public transit buses, the missiles got closer and closer, a waterfall slowly overwhelming the defenses of the Terran vehicles. The precursors were close enough to fight back, Battle screens flared and rippled as lasers and cannon shells pried at them with deadly fingers, looking for some way in al Nanak went down first, a heavy cannon shot blowing through his falling and already damaged battle screen. The liquid stream of explosively forged penetrated, hitting the dead center of his cockpit and exiting from the back of a fan of liquid metal. Albuak opened up his autocannons, going to maximum fire rate, ignoring the heat warnings, raking the encroaching line of vehicles with armor-piercing discarded Sabo rounds. Sweeping it back and forth, his missile base ran empty. He slammed the protective cover shut. One of the Terran vehicles exploded. The missile Salvo started landing on the side, blowing Nikleem apart as his mech took an entire volley of heavy missiles. Elmoak avenged his last pilot with a trio of particle beams and stomped the overheating override and kept firing. "'Boss, we're going to get overrun,' Tack yelled. "'Yes,' Elmoak answered. A warborg pulled its way free from the Terran wreckage, grabbing a slightly intact four-barrel point-defense gun, plunging it into a power cable into his leg and opening fire, laying two-centimeter laser fire into the oncoming precursors.' Albuak added his own fire, sweeping across the still-advancing metal horde. Boss, on our right, Tak called out. The other Terran vehicle blew up. Albuak turned seeing more precursor vehicles rush out, firing as they came. Albuak couldn't stem the tide as the sudden rush let them overwhelm the Swintle's battle screen and pour fire into them. The precursors were on them. Almuc was aware the Terran warwalk fighting, still firing the point defense gun like it was a sidearm. The beam bright, with the eye watering when he was swarmed over. Wuxtal went down next, screaming, "Witness me!" as a crab-like precursor machine swarmed up his body, tearing off his armor and lasers firing from their mouths. Almuc heard him scream, turned and washed over the downed mech with plasma, cutting off Wuxtal's scream and destroying the crab bots. Alarms went off and the battle screens went down. Back to back, Plunktukits yelled. My battle screens are down. Almuak took two steps back, feeding his armor thud against hers. Together, they fired, breaking the precursor machines who attacked them as if they were insane, swarming over the smoking wreckage of their own dead as their eagerness to get the last two warriors fighting back to back. "'Boss, we're out of ammo and we're overheating. "'We have to withdraw,' Tack yelled. "'We've got like three autocannon rounds left. "'Goodbye, Tack.' "'You were faithful,' Ulwak said, "'slapping the red button that he had helped wire into the cockpit. "'Boss, no! What are you doing? Ta- don't, don't, what, what, what?' "'Tack vanished, the automatic maintenance transfer "'sending him into his own survival corps. "'The transmitter went live, sending Tack to a spare survival corps "'that Ulmonak had prepared.' a survival corps that by now would be being delivered to his uncle. I will see my podlings soon, Plunketik grasped. My mech is going to shut down. We're going to pull me from the cockpit and pull me apart. Face me, Almorak ordered, when he could see Plunketik's cockpit on his reticle on his left at his arm. Join the podlings without pain, old friend, Almorak said. Plunketik's mech stood up straight, precursor machines crawling up its torso and legs. He knew that she was raising her chin in defiance as she dropped her arm. Almoak fired the last three Gorto cannon rounds. Heat flushed through the cockpit of Plunketik's mech tipped over backwards, atomizing metal and streaming from the back of the bash mech like blood. Almoak extended the sword and started laying around him, firing lasers, PPCs, smashing the precursor machines underfoot. As he fought, he activated his data link. His uncle face appeared in his cyber eye. I'll be with you soon, uncle, was all he said before terminating the link. The precursors were crawling on him as the barrage of missiles got past his overworked point defense and EW. His mech shuddered and stepped back, the overheated gyro seized. Albuak landed on his back, feeling something snap between his torso and his body. He couldn't feel his legs. His mech's power failed. The heat was baking him and he could smell his own flesh and hair burning. At least, he couldn't feel it. He opened the comlink. Trucker, come in, trucker, he gasped. His lower lungs weren't working. He could feel blood oozing up in the long throat. Come in, trucker. Something was prying off his makeshift armor. Trucker, come in, trucker, he gasped, pulling the needler out from where he kept it under his pouch. With another hand, he pulled a handful of narco stems out and injected them into his chest. Come in, trucker. The armor screamed as it bent. Trucker here? Is that you, Omawak? The armor bent far enough for a red-eyed tentacle with graspers to try and slide in. Ulmowak fired the needler, smashing the eye. It was able to breathe, barely, without pain. Yes, do it. Do what? Trucker said. Atomics, do it, Ulmowak gasped. Can't help us. Do it. Trucker dropped the line and Ulmowak slapped the engine start button twice, shooting two more precursors that tried to get in. His mech started and he struggled to his feet and what looked like a metal octopus ripped away the canopy. The damaged laser still packing enough of a punch to blow the precursor machine off the front of his cockpit, even if it blistered his flesh and burnt away his hair. It was blind in his front eye so he turned his head, using his mechanical eyes. He kept firing, not screaming, just shooting even as the Precursor smashed his weaponry, he kept fighting, even when the chainsaw bound up and shattered like the chassis of the Precursor mech twice a wax size. He was still shooting when the Precursor pulled his torso out of the cockpit, his lower body staying in the straps, when the world went white. v we corps Memo For the regulars earned battle standard and awards due to the defense of Hulamunga Industrial Facility Shelters. A review after action is completed. Bolo 31673 SCR in on-site reports that shelters are intact and sealed. Nothing follows. honagana Industrial Facility Destroyed Yesterday, the criminal Ulmoak detonated an industrial facility's fusion reactor, destroying the executor and corporate security who had been defending it from the precursor threat, destroying the Hulanga Industrial Facility and the shelters both. Tune in later for the official Kestimate Corporation Office of Public Affairs Statement End of Chapter First Contact Chapter forty nine. The streets were full of smoke. Random debris swirled around in the wind. Corpses torn apart and left scattered. Destroyed precursor drones and rubble that had spilled from where buildings had collapsed. The entire city was full of sounds, explosions, and high-pitched thrumming and screaming from energy weapons. The roar of rockets and missiles, and the waning of frightened trapped in the buildings and huddling in the rubble. That had grown so loud that it could even be heard over the combat between the Terran military and the precursor machines. A little talkin ran with short little legs, her fur filthy and matted, her huge eyes wide and watering with tears, her tunic torn and filthy. A ragged, tattered doll held tightly in her body, even as though it was missing an arm. She was crying as she ran, terror pushing her exhausted body further down the street her broodmother's words echoing through her mind. "'Run, Podling! Don't look back!' The warm, soft, good-smelling and loving broodmother had yelled to little Tolkien as the machines had bit and stung, crashed through the window and into the little store that they had been hiding inside. She ran past the bodies, her little brain editing them out, running past the fires burning in the street, past the holes in the ground, climbing over rubble and sobbing as she'd been told. Run! She wanted her mother, her father, her brood mothers, the others, but all she had was Mr. Kukuk, her stuffy, and her brood mother had told her, screaming in the pinching machines, Run! Her soft feet were bleeding from cuts where rubble had sliced into her delicate walking pads, but still she kept going, crying, scrambling, holding tight to Mister Kikik as she ran. She scraped her knee and got up, running. She cut her hand, scrambling up the rubble, and kept running. She burst up from the hole in the ground, scorching her fur, but she didn't stop. Run! She came to a stop, screaming when the huge metal snake, as wide as the street, crashed through the building, little pieces of rubble bouncing around her as she ducked and covered her head with one arm, screaming. The snake was twisting in the street when she saw it had hundreds, thousands of legs. It held something in its mouth, with its big pinches, something that was struggling. She screamed, knowing it was going to hurt it. Knowing that the many-legged snake was bad, she turned to run and saw them. uh, Pinchies! She looked around wildly, looking for a way out. There was only walls on either side. Pinchies running at her on spider legs, and the huge snake thrashing around. "'Kill you! Skin you! Eat you!' Her voice roared through the translator necklace that she wore. She screamed, crouching down, holding Mr. tight covering her head with one arm. She was sure the pinches yelling it. The snake crouched down behind her and screamed again, staring at pinches running at her. You aren't nothing. She heard a roar from behind her. Her necklace translated this. Eat this. There was an explosion behind her. The pinches were halfway at her when she turned to look behind her. A big, metal man was standing up, breaking the pinches holding on to him, bigger than daddy, with his two arms and two legs and his head and two eyes just like her daddy. No tendrils or weird faces, just a flat face. He didn't have soft fur, not like mommy or brood mommy or daddy. He was made of black metal and his eyes were a bright, glowy green. Christ, kid, look out. The big metal man yelled, raising his arm. She screamed and turned around and ducked, covering her head, curling over Mr. Kikik, holding him tight with the sore arm. There was a thrumming noise, a loud noise, like when the food heaty she wasn't allowed to play with was on, and she felt heat on her head and made her fur crinkle and made her get all wet and gross and sweat. She saw the pinches get touched by the blue flickering light of the white core, the flickering light making them pop with the bright flashes. She heard the studding footsteps as a big metal man moved in front of her, his hand cocking back strangely and the blue light coming from the tube sticking out of his palm. She wondered if it had hurt his hand pad. She looked away and then light hurting her sensitive eyes. The light stopped and she opened her eyes and looked up. The big metal man was looking down at her, and she saw the metal man had tears in his metal skin like she had in her tunic. Silver fluid, like the red blood that filled her scrapes and ran into her fur on her arms and legs, filled up the tears in the metal skin. A big knife was sticking out of his arm, and as she watched, slid back inside with a snap. You okay, kid? The big metal man asked. She nodded, her eyes wide as she stared at him. Where are your parents? The metal man asked. The Pinchies got my brood, mommy, the little girl said, starting to snuffle again. She yelled at me to run, so I ran, and for as fast as I could, she sobbed. The Pinchies chased me. You're okay, kid. Let's find somewhere safe for you, the metal man said, looking up. This is Char 3381. Does anyone read me? This is Char 3381. Does anyone read me? Who are you talking to? she asked. Is Char your name or is it your number? It's a funny name. The metal man looked down. You can hear that? Yes, the little girl said, hugging Mr. Kikiki close. The metal man turned around and knelt down. Can you see the back of my head? The little girl stood there on her tiptoes. Yes, yeah, I think you have a pinchy stuck in it. The big metal man tried to reach back of his head, but wasn't quite able to reach it. He gave a sigh. Honey, I need you to climb on my back, okay? He said and sat down. "'Okay,' the little girl said. "'Her sniffles were stopping. "'She climbed up and standing on his legs, pulling herself up. "'She whined a little when her arm hurt. "'Now what?' "'Can you pull the piece of metal out of my head?' he asked. "'She wrapped her paw around it and tried to squeeze and stopped. "'It's sharp. "'You're really hot. "'Do metal men get sickies?' "'No, we don't.' "'All right,' he sighed, looking around.' I'm not even sure where I am. My GPS is out. Oh, she said. Climb down and sit on the big rock in the street. I'm lost too. Lost my rifle too. Auto cannons empty, out of mass, overheating and slashed out. Battle screens down. The big battle man stood up. And half my onboards are out. He turned around looking at her. Why aren't you in a shelter? She shrugged. Mama tried the people at the shelter told us that we belonged in the street and called my mama a bad name. She started sobbing. We walked away and when the crowd was hoping to get into a different one and there was a really loud bangs from trucks with people and mommy always said to do what they say. People started screaming, "Rude mommy grab me and we ran." She held tight onto Mr. Kikuk there was a loud noise and everyone, even mommy and daddy and other brood mothers and the other podlings, all popped like balloons when the light touched them. There was a light coming from some big trucks. Digital H, Kid. the big metal man said, I'm sorry. The little girl sobbed and hugged Mr. Kikik harder. Brood mommy hid us in a store, even though she had a bad thing and broke the window with a rock. "'We've been in there during the noise, even when the big light came.' The big metal man knelt down. "'You've been in that shop for five days. Have you even eaten?' Little girl nodded. "'Brood mommy fed me. She ran out of milk yesterday, though. I'm hungry and I'm thirsty.' The little girl looked up, tears coming from her large, expansive eyes. "'I want my brood mommy.' "'It's okay, kid,' the big metal man said. "'I've got you.' "'What's your name?' "'Poddling,' she said. "'We don't have names yet. "'Can you eat regular food or only brood mommy milk?' "'The big metal man asked, standing up and looking around. "'I can eat big people food. "'I'm almost old enough to have a name,' she said, looking up. "'There, we can get you something to eat there,' the big metal man said, pointing at a shop. "'The little girl looked at front of the shop and shook her head. "'There's no poddling sign. "'That's for masters. "'Not today, kid.' You're with me, the big metal man said. He took a couple steps and stopped. Oops, that's not good. What? The little girl looked around. The metal man moved closer to a big car, an important kind that mommy said to always look out for, and grabbed the door and ripped it open with a scream of metal. Get in, kid. Hurry, the metal man said. Sit in the back and the middle of the seat and don't look. The puddling nodded. Hurrying up, she sat on the seat and buckled her seat harness. "'Don't look. Look down. Don't look, sweetie,' the big metal man said and closed the door. She could hear the waning coming. The wailers screamed and ran down the street, some breaking windows, some hitting people, others throwing rocks. She didn't know why they wailed. They just did. She saw them ripping at each other's clothing sometimes, still wading.' Even masters were part of the wailers. They were all blackened and owies all over, their hair falling out and icky sores on their faces. The wailing got louder and she covered her ears, bending over and squeezing her eyes tight. Get off me, don't touch me, get your slimy hands off me, the metal man roared. Glass broke, making her eyes open, and some landed in her feet. She closed her eyes, squeezing them shut. She heard metal crunch, heard screaming and terrible noises. The waiting got so loud it hurt her ears, and still the metal man yelled at them to stop touching him, to get off of him, to keep their hands to themselves. There was banging on metal, more glass broke, and it felt like someone was jumping on the car. Then the wading slowly faded away. It was quiet for a second and the door opened. She squeezed her eyes shut. "'Don't look, honey. I'll have to pull the roof off a bit, but don't look, okay?' The man said. "'I won't, I promise,' she said. "'Okay, be good,' he said. She heard metal screech and could smell the air. It smelled like blood. She felt a harness unclick and the metal man lifted her up. His hands and arms were really hot. "'Are you sicky?' she asked. "'No, sweetie, just overheated,' the metal man said. "'Keep your eyes closed. Hold on to your doll.' He's Mr. Kikik, the podling said. Hold on to Mr. Kikik, the metal man said. He started walking, then running. It felt like she was flying, being held by the metal man. As he ran through the streets, he suddenly stopped and there was a noise of glass breaking and metal tearing. She was carefully set into a chair. Okay, sweetie, you can open your eyes. She looked around. It was a food store where masters and important people that you did what they said they would eat. The big metal man had moved over to the food dispenser and ripped open the front of it. It's Nutri-Paste, he said, getting it pour out from the broken machine into a big bowl. You're gonna be in trouble, she said. I don't want you to be in trouble. I'm already in trouble, the metal man said. Okay, the little potling said, and started slurping down the Nutri-Paste. It didn't taste like anything, but it made her tummy feel better. The metal man moved under the water that was pouring from a pipe, standing in the water. Pieces popped up and hissed as he saw the stream start to come off of him. He chewed on the little ball to ease the ache in her gums, watching. After the big pieces closed again and the big metal man came over, we need a move, kid, the metal man said. The precursor's all over the place. We need to get out of the city. I'm hurt inside and I can't use my slush. Can't run diagnostics. Will a hug help? she asked. Brood mommy would hug her when she was scared. The metal man didn't have a brood mommy with him. It won't hurt, kid, the metal man said. She grabbed his thick leg and hugged it, feeling how warm it was and liking how it vibrated. She let go and looked up. Will you carry me? she asked. The metal man nodded, picking her up and Mr. Kikik. She went out into the street and started running. She felt like she was flying again as they ran. He kept dodging around the stuff that loomed out of the smoke, jumping over some of it. The popling suddenly felt embarrassed. Metal man, she said. Yes, sweetie, he metal man said. I pooped myself. I'm sorry, she said. She rubbed her fur and some came off. Her skin was red-looking and hurt. My fur's coming off... "'You'll be all right. It's rad sick. I'll get you to the medics and they'll patch you up,' the metal man said. Somehow he ran faster. He started stumbling and staggering and Podling looked up at him, his green eyes glowing in the dark, were fixed ahead.' ''Are you all right, Mr. Metal Man?'' the Podling asked. ''The goo around my thinky stuff is running out. I'm leaking, kid,'' the metal man said. ''Medics, get you to the medics,'' he said, his voice barely audible over the sounds of the war-torn city. They kept moving, the metal man lurching to the side, getting warmer and warmer. The metal man suddenly stopped pushing the Podling under a car. ''No come out, no look,'' he said. He stood up and she heard it. "The monster here, here, right here, he yelled. There was a crash. Three, three, two, infantry, the mental man roared. There was a bright light, blue, and more light, and then some of it red, some of it green. Kill you. A giant hand hit the street next to the burnt-out car, on the and the podding closed her eyes, holding tight Mr. Kikik. Skin to you. There was another crash, a loud shriek, and only a clap of thunder hurt the podding's ears. Eat you the metal man bellowed. There was a heavy crash, then silence. The car suddenly flipped over and the podling screamed, looking up. The metal man stood there, his head was smashed, one eye popped out and dangling from wires. His body looked smashed, wires poking out from the coop leaking out. Podling, the metal man rumbled. The podling held up her arms, to kick in hand. The metal man reached down, picking up the potling. The potling noticed that the big knife was broken, part of it bent away from the metal man's head. "'Medics,' the metal man said, his voice squeaking at the end. He cradled it close and started running. She looked behind her. There was another metal man, all brown metal covered in holes, its head twisted off and burning holes of its back. One foot was kicking, but it didn't move. It was really big.' "'Poddling,' the metal man said as they ran through the smoke. "'Yes, Mr. Metal Man,' the little girl asked. "'Sick, medic, run,' he said. "'Yes, Mr. Metal Man, brood mommy said run,' she said, and hugged the metal man's arm, feeling how hot it was. His chest was warm, too, just like brood mommies. "'Run,' the metal man said. They kept running through the streets, around the burning cars. "'Sick!' Medic. The bottling hugged the metal man. Goo had oozed out of him. Some red, some pink, some silver, some blue. Bottling. Sick. Medic. He kept repeating as he ran. She hugged him, arm tight. When she threw up on him, still hugged him, willing him to be okay. willing the hug to make him all better. The metal man stopped, looking down with one green eye. He put a hand up and fired out a bright blue beam, once, twice, three times. The howl of a vehicle sounded, the vehicle coming closer. The metal man shot once, twice, three times again, straight up into the air. The vehicle landed. More metal men jumped out. They were flashing red lights on their shoulders. Bardling, the man said, the word drawing out like a moan. The vibration stopped. She looked up. His eyes were dark. The new metal men ran up, red shapes on their chests. They had to pull Mr. Metal Man's arm away, and they took her to the flying vehicle. She cried. She reached out to the metal man. As the vehicle went up in the air, she cried out for him. As they stuck a needle tube in her arm, she struggled, holding on to Mr. Kikik. as they put a mask on her face reaching out while the metal man on this vehicle rose into the air. He stood in the middle of the intersection, unmoving, the smoke swirling around him, and he was gone. She came often after she was named, after she grew up. She had looked it up where Lance Corporal Char 3381 of the Terran Confederation Marine Corps had finally died. She would stand on that corner, staring at the middle of the street as the ground cars went by. She never forgot him, even when her patchy fur turned grey, even when her whiskers drooped, even when her own podlings' podlings had to help her go there. And she took Mr. Kikik with her every time. Terran Confederate Marine Corps, Lance Corporal Char 3381, Posthumously awarded the Marine Silver Star for actions above and beyond the call of duty. Char 3381 severely wounded, carried an orphan Talkan Podling suffering from radiation poisoning beyond the city of Shuriman, signaling a passing medical evac unit to the Podling's distress. During his travels, he engaged two super-heavy Precursor infantry units, upholding his duty, defeating them single-handedly in defense of the Podling. Despite a cracked brain case, despite being out of neural fluid, he kept moving, and by his valor and actions, the talcum bottling was evacuated from the city. Lance Corporal Char-3381 was pronounced dead on scene, his body was recovered, and the tissue remains were buried with full Marine Corps honors on terror. Nothing follows. End of chapter